0: Please take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Again, that is the book of Romans, chapter 14. And let me begin as we uh, get into this chapter today. uh, Begin with a statement. Here it is. Paul is concerned. I think that's the starting point. Uh, We need to be clear on that point as we open... Uh, his epistle to the Romans, we turn to this chapter. We need to be very clear. Paul is concerned. To bring us up to speed, uh, to make sure we are all on the same page, uh, let me ask three questions to kind of bring out what I mean by that. Paul is concerned. Here's question number one why is he concerned? As we, we're in this chapter, we're halfway through it. Um, what is he concerned about? what's on his mind. He tells us right at the outset in the first verse, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so Paul recognizes that in the church at Rome, there are two groups of people. Uh, There is group number one over here, the weak, more on them in just a moment. There is over here, group number two, the strong. And what divides them is the issue of opinions as he expresses it there in the first verse. And he knows that these two groups are on an unavoidable collision course uh, unless the problem is addressed. That's why he is concerned. Second question I want to ask is this, what does he mean by opinions? And here is where we must be very careful. We hear that word opinion. We might think Paul is speaking generally in terms of whatever I think is right versus whatever you think is right. I have opinions. You have opinions. Basically, in the end, everyone has opinions. And these things should not divide us. Paul is not using the word opinion so loosely. He is not, firstly, please note, he is not, when he uses that word opinions, he is not talking of a biblical doctrine. He is not suggesting for a moment that when it comes to doctrine, uh, the essence, the content, the object of our faith, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You have your opinion, I have my opinion, and we should simply agree to disagree. No, 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 no. I was uh, dismayed a couple months back, I was reading an article about the current state of evangelicalism, and according to a recent report, two-thirds of evangelicals, two-thirds of confessing evangelicals have no problem with the following statement. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others pray to the same God, even though they use a different name for God. Two-thirds of evangelicals. And so someone who actually believes that might say to me, look, that's my opinion, and you can't judge me. To which I would reply, I am judging you. I am judging you according to the word of God, and your opinion is dead wrong. Paul is not speaking of biblical doctrine. And we cannot abuse this text, or another favorite one people like to run to is Matthew chapter 7, the first couple of verses. We cannot run to such texts and say, look, this basically means we can't judge when it comes to doctrine, and I'm free to believe whatever I want. That is not the spirit, the intent of the Apostle Paul. Secondly, I want us to notice and be clear on the fact that Paul is not speaking about moral behavior. He's not referring to moral behavior. And so I recall, again, just a few months back, uh, speaking with a young man, a professing Christian, uh, has professed to be a Christian for some years now. And he has lived with his girlfriend off and on. Well, I know what you think, he says to me. I know what you think the Bible says. This is what I think the Bible says. That is your opinion. This is my opinion. And you can't judge me. To which I replied, not in these words, but they were certainly my intent. I am judging you. I am judging your behavior according to the word of God. And it is found wanting. Your opinion is wrong. Paul, please be clear on this. We will abuse these texts given the spirit of the age. We will twist these texts to our own liking. I'm free to believe whatever I want. I'm free to behave however I please. It is my opinion. You have your opinion, but you dare not judge me. That is sadly the spirit of the age. One preacher has described this spirit as follows. The idol of the day. The idol, he calls it, of our day, is a kind of jellyfish Christianity. Christianity without bone or muscle. It is a vague, foggy, misty Christianity. Of which the only watch words seem to be, you must think everybody is right. And nobody is wrong. That, my friends, is not what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse nor is it what he is saying in this chapter. We need to be very clear on what he means by opinions. He seems to be working in a very, he is working in a very defined framework. And we can look at all of the opinions he alludes to in this chapter, and we can basically group them under two headings. The first have to do with opinions. Disputable matters that arise from what? The question as to how I relate to the Old Testament ceremonial law. I think some of those laws still apply. I don't think they're necessary for salvation. I don't confuse them with the gospel for one moment. But I think maybe they were onto something there in the Old Testament when they forbade that kind of food, when they designated certain foods unclean, clean, when they performed certain rituals, and I think that's still for me today. Whereas others in this church, Recognize what? No, the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. The ceremonial law constitutes a shadow. We now live in the age of a substance. You have the weak, you have the strong, and it all has to do with how I think I relate to the Old Testament ceremonial law. The second major division or point of contention has to do with the issue of how I think I relate to my society. How do I relate to those things in my society which are actually morally neutral? Neither good nor bad. They're they're morally neutral. But they have in some way in my society become associated with evil. And so the great issue that arises in this text, it certainly comes out in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, has to do with meat. Meat that has been offered to idols. The meat in and of itself morally neutral all things are created by God he has declared all things good but there is now this sort of guilt by association that animal was slaughtered at one point the meat was actually offered sacrifice to an idol demons may be behind these idols well I don't feel very comfortable then eating that meat where they're weak Christians whereas there are strong Christians in this church would recognize I don't care what was done with that meat I'm just looking for a good brisket I don't care it's irrelevant to me. I don't worship those idols. I don't even acknowledge the authority of those demons behind those idols. I didn't participate in that worship. I call that evil. I'm just taking the meat, buying it, and I'm enjoying it with my family at home. Those seem to be the two main areas, uh, big umbrellas, if you like, in which Paul is dealing, with, has in mind, when he uses this, this word, opinions, how do I relate to the Old Testament ceremonial law? How do I relate to my society? Especially those things which in and of themselves are harmless. But my society has gone and associated it in some way with evil. These are points of contention. These are disputable matters. These are the sorts of opinions that Paul has in view. Not biblical doctrine. Nor Moral behavior he has defined what he means by opinions. The third question is this. Well, how does Paul proceed? How does he deal with these issues? I'll get to the main thrust of his argument in just a matter. I just want to mention a few things right at the get-go These these are essential these are crucial for us and I hope we are able to apply them in our own context Uh, the opinions that we deal with in our own day, I want you to notice the following at the outset. Number one, Paul acknowledges that one group is right and one group is wrong. Right? I hope we're clear on that. Paul doesn't say it's all gray, and it doesn't matter which side of the fence you fall on. No, as far as Paul is concerned, one group is right, and one group is wrong. How do we know that? Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We... Including what? Himself, who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Paul does identify with one of these groups. As far as Paul is concerned, one of these groups is right. So don't misunderstand him to be saying, look, there's just simply this gray area in which there is no right or wrong and it doesn't matter. No. No. Paul, again, acknowledges one group is right, one group is wrong. Second thing I want us to get, however, is this. He doesn't attempt to prove that either of these groups is right or wrong. That's crucial. It's not what he's about here. He does not attempt to prove. Doesn't enter into an argument. He doesn't lay out his uh, 30 arguments, his long list of reasons why this group is right, this group is wrong. It's not the point. His point isn't to demonstrate. His point isn't to win an argument here. It's just not his concern. The third thing we notice is this he's focused on something he considers to be far more important than winning the argument. That's hard for us, especially those of us who enjoy table games. If you're anything like me, you play a table game to do what? To win. And so if you're wired a little bit like me, well, what's the point if there's no winner? Uh, what's the point in playing the game? It used to drive me, it, well, still does a wee bit, but those individuals, I just can't enter your world. I'm sorry, I can't. The individuals who can sit down to a game of Monopoly or sit down to a game of Rook or something else uh, and, and can just sort of play for the fun of it. The, the socialization and all this. If you're gonna play, play to win or don't play at all. Many of us are wired that way. And so when it comes to these issues, what are we immediately looking for? Well, of course, there's got to be a winner. Someone has to come out on top. That is not the road Paul goes down in this chapter. He is not the least bit interested in proving that one of these groups is right or wrong. He's not interested in winning an argument. He is focused on something he considers to be more important. And here it is. Last thing I want you to notice here. He reveals, he reveals, he articulates, he expresses, he emphasizes how these two groups can worship together without devouring one another. That's it. That's his concern. How these people who disagree can actually worship together, live together, serve together without devouring one another. With that goal before him. How does he proceed to deal with the problem? He gives three remedies. Remedy number one, we considered last Sunday, don't judge, but welcome. The first 12 verses of chapter 14. The second remedy, still in chapter 14, verse 13, through to the end of the chapter. The third remedy into chapter 15, the first four verses, more or less, And then he follows these three remedies with a heartfelt, earnest, fervent, pastoral appeal. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 15 through to verse 13. And so as I said, we looked at remedy number one last week. Don't judge, welcome. Now we're ready for remedy number two. Don't destroy, edify. Follow along, please, as I read God's word beginning in Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding... If he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Have you got it? Remedy number two, do not destroy edify. Where do I get that? He emphasizes it twice beginning in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded, the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Paul's point is this. Look, here's my brother. My brother is convinced in his mind before the Lord that he ought to do this or he ought to refrain from that. Again, in the context, it's observing certain days. It's refraining from certain foods. It's refraining from that which is unclean. It's refraining from wine. Those are the particular issues Paul is dealing with in that church. Well, look, I understand that for my brother before the Lord, he has decided that these things are taboo. Well, how are we going to resolve this? Because for me, I have no issue with those things. And so how are we going to live in peace? How are we going to maintain unity? Here's the commandment I must follow. I am not to destroy my brother. I am to edify. Meaning what? I must recognize that before the Lord... He has established these things as wrong or he's okay with these things. I don't want to see my brother violate his own conscience before the Lord because he actually sees me doing something that makes him very uncomfortable. I'm just not going to plow ahead. Well, that's his problem. He needs to get over it and grow up. No, I'm going to understand his scruples I'm going to be sensitive to his sensitivities on this issue. And I'm going to be driven by this number one concern. I don't want him to stumble. Because if he sins against conscience before the Lord, he sins. He is not acting in faith. I want what is best for him. And so I'm willing to forego some of my liberties. I'm willing to just sacrifice some of those things I'm okay with. But I know just, let that this. Disc- comfort. It irks him because I want to edify him rather than destroy him. Paul repeats it. Same chapter a little later beginning in verse 20. Do not, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. I mean this is huge as far as Paul is concerned. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has the the doubts is condemned. If he eats, if he acts against conscience, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul is simply repeating himself, expanding on his main point a little bit. Here it is again. I know this brother. I know that for this sister, this is a real problem. I'm not really sure why I'm not sure how they've come at this But I respect the fact that before the Lord they are convinced in their mind that this is something God just would not have them do All right. I love my brother and I love my sister. I want peace. I want harmony I recognize there's something of far greater significance going on here, and I understand that if my brother if he were actually then to act against what he has decided Before the Lord. uh, He would be guilty of sinning. I want no pardon. uh, I, I, I don't want to lead him down that road. I don't want to be the cause of that. Therefore I don't want to put before him. Anything that might make him stumble. Anything that might cause him to act against his conscience. His convictions before God. Because you see my chief concern is what? Not to destroy the work Of God, but to edify. That is Paul's main remedy in this section. He supports it. With three reasons in the intervening verses. So we've looked at the commandment and its, and its argumentation in verses 13 and 14. We see it again in verses 20 through 23. In the intervening verses, mainly verses 15 through 19, he gives three reasons to support this approach to the entire contentious issue. Here's the first reason. You know, when you act like this, When you're driven by this goal, not to destroy your brother, but to edify him, I want you to understand that it is consistent. It is perfectly consistent with what it means to love God's people. Conversely, to act otherwise is inconsistent with what it means to love God's people. I think that comes out in the verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good. You're convincing your own mind that it's okay. Don't allow it to be spoken of as evil. Causing your brother to trip. To stumble. To fall. Thereby destroying the work of God. No, you must be motivated by love for him. Recognizing what? That Christ gave up himself for him. It's It's reminiscent, go back to the 12th chapter. It is reminiscent of what Paul says there, beginning in verse 9. Do you remember this text? Do you recall a couple months back now? But by way of reminder, look in the 12th chapter, verse 9. Paul declares, oh, let love be genuine, without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, in showing preference. He's now showing us in chapter 14 one way, one pivotal way in which what he's just said in chapter 12 is actually worked out given legs in the context of the church. If your brother, again, verse 15, is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You're just doing whatever you jolly well please. Well, he can eat. Who cares what he thinks? He's just a little legalist or something. I don't know how he got there. Well, I'm not going to let him bind my liberties. I'm not going to let him impede what I want to do. My preferences, my interests, my tastes, I'm no longer walking in love. Oh, by what you eat, when it comes to these issues, do not destroy the one. Oh, remember this, for whom Christ died. Christ gave up his life to save my brother. Can I not give up some of my opinions for my brother's good? That's his point. Christ sacrificed everything to save my brother. Can I not sacrifice some of my liberties? for my brother's good Christ surrendered everything to save my brother can i not surrender some of my personal preferences for my brother's good that's the first reason supporting the command well that command it is consistent do not destroy edify it is consistent with what it means to love God's people. The second reason is this brings us into verse 17. That command is also consistent with what it means to esteem God's kingdom. And so look at what Paul writes, verse 17: For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. You no, know, I think Paul is really saying, I think Paul is really saying this. Look, my friend, understand. <laughs> There are some hills worth dying on. There are some hills that aren't even worth climbing. That's his point here in the 17th verse. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Who cares? But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so he's given us a little perspective here in terms of what is important when it comes to the kingdom of God. His great triad of righteousness, peace, and joy. Very reminiscent of what? Oh, go with me back to chapter 5. Very reminiscent. It parallels what Paul declares at the outset of that chapter. Look at it with me. Romans 5, precious verses. Verse 1, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so there Paul has introduced the triad. Look, we are justified by faith. Meaning what? We have obtained to a righteous standing in the sight of God through faith. How? Very simple. I have looked away from myself. Looked away from myself. Because I have understood that I've never done anything pleasing in the sight of God. And I have come to the Lord Jesus who is the righteousness of God. And I have received the Lord Jesus by faith. And in receiving him by faith, I have become in him the righteousness of God. So I now stand accepted, I stand welcomed, I stand beloved in the sight of a holy God because I have believed in the Lord Jesus, I am one with Him, and He is my righteous standing in God's sight. Oh, what peace that has brought to the soul. Oh, an overwhelming deluge, flood of peace That in Christ, Christ himself has brought together these two who were formerly at enmity, God and me, and he has bound us together. And the consequence is what? I now exult. I rejoice. A ravishment that cannot be compressed in the hope of glory. He is saying the same thing here back in chapter 14, verse 17. Oh, please get this. The kingdom of God is not going to rise or fall on the food you eat or what you drink or the observance of some of those days or any of these other issues that might divide Christians. It's not going to rise or fall on those issues. Oh, here's the kingdom of God. It consists of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Oh, are my freedom. The most important thing in my life? Are my liberties the most significant thing in my life? Are my preferences the most important thing in the Christian life? If they are, then I blow it because I will invariably tear down God's work in others for the sake of my opinions. Paul's point is this. Look, that kind of thinking is antithetical to the kingdom of God. Your perspective is skewed. You need to understand there are hills worth dying on. There are hills worth giving everything for these truths. The kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy. With the kingdom of God, it's not going to rise or fall, be here today, gone tomorrow, when it comes to all these other matters. No, 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 no. Some perspective, please, and conduct yourself accordingly. That's his point. The command, do not destroy, but edify, is consistent with what it means to esteem God's kingdom. And thirdly, it is consistent with what it means to seek God's acceptance. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, please understand, Paul here, when he says that when we serve Christ in this way, we are acceptable to God, he is not suggesting for one moment that this is the basis upon which God saves us. He is not speaking of God's acceptance or God's welcoming. God's reception, if you like, of the sinner into his kingdom on the basis of what he does. No, God welcomes us. He accepts us for only one reason, which is what? The Lord Jesus Christ. Once in, born again by the Spirit of God, we do as Christians conduct ourselves in a manner that is either pleasing or displeasing, not to our judge, but to our Father. We do conduct ourselves in a way that he either accepts or he rejects. But this has no bearing on the issue of salvation. It has no bearing on the issue of his acceptance of us in Christ. He is speaking here of the life the Christian lives. He's already alluded to it. Go back with me to the 12th chapter. The very first verse. What does he say? I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. He has expounded the gospel. He's explained what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. He has explained and defended and affirmed what it means to be in Christ. Now I appeal to you, those who are in Christ, those who have been received, welcomed, accepted in Christ, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you now do what? You present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, I pray now, I beg of you to make it your priority to live in a manner that is consistent with whom you now identify yourself with, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. You have dressed yourself, clothed yourself in the righteousness of Christ. Now live in a manner that is consistent with it. Now live out in life who you are your new identity in Christ. And when you do so, living your life as a sacrifice, understand that this is acceptable to God. This is pleasing to God. Oh, you know what that means? That means I need to go halfway around the world to be a missionary. Do something truly significant that is pleasing to God. If God is calling you to go halfway around the world as a missionary, God bless you and I will affirm you in it. But Paul has something far more significant, immediate in view. If you want to live a life that is acceptable to God, if you want to do something that is momentous, if you want to get involved in something that is a game changer, he's just told us here in verse 18, if you serve Christ like this, it is acceptable to God and approved by men. We get wrapped up in the big things sometimes, don't we? And we lose sight of the small things. You know, let me check that. Things which are small in our perspective, but I actually think are huge in God's perspective. In God's reckoning. How we get along with each other. How we deal with opinions that will divide us if not dealt with. And so Paul is affirming here, look, you must be driven by this principle, a desire to edify, not destroy, and recognize it is consistent with what it means to seek God's acceptance. Am I interested in pleasing myself or pleasing God? Is my concern to satisfy my desires or build up the body of Christ? Is my objective to do what I want Or to help people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not destroy. Edify. That is remedy number two. Now let me drive it home by way of two questions. I had a number of questions. I'm narrowing them down to two. And with these two, I think we get the essence of the text. And I think we get the mind of the Apostle Paul and what he is driving at in these verses. Here is question number one. This must be the starting point. It points us to what I think is the most significant verse in the text, namely verse 17. Here's the question. Am I in God's kingdom? That's the question. It's got to be the starting point. Look at what he says in the 17th verse. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. He now defines its essence. He establishes its parameters. Notice the threefold description. The kingdom of God is a matter of what? Firstly, righteousness. Of what? Secondly, peace. Of what? Thirdly, joy in the Holy Spirit. He is giving us a complete picture of the citizen of the kingdom of God. That citizen, that member of that kingdom is marked by righteousness and peace and joy. It begs again this obvious question, am I in God's kingdom? I ask the question because the Bible terrifies me at times. It really does. Just frightens me. think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous are not in the kingdom of God. They are excluded. Paul states it definitively. Do not be deceived. He adds that. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It terrifies me. Why? Because I find myself, therefore, by definition, standing on the outside looking in. And my friend, so do you, because there is none righteous, no, not one. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl right now in this room, by nature, just by virtue of who we are and the lives we lived, we are excluded from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness. We are unrighteous. This must be the starting point. It has to be the starting point. Oh, please listen to me carefully. It has to be the starting point when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. Because you see, we never seek a remedy until we realize just how sick we are. We never go see the doctor till we're in pain. We never take the drugs or the prescription or whatever it is until we're convinced of our ailment. And this is the problem. This is the problem that plagues countless people, dare I say it, certainly outside the church, and some who even find themselves inside the church, unaware of who exactly they are in the sight of God. And therefore, the good news of the gospel just kind of, it's like a flyby weightless, irrelevant. Well, that's nice for that person, but it has absolutely nothing to do with me. I, remember, I recall a preacher years ago who used the following illustration. He said, look, imagine, imagine you've got an airplane and there are only two men on the airplane, one in the front, one in the back. And the steward stewardess walks through, halfway through the flight and approaches the man in the front and hands him a parachute. Put this on. It's going to make your flight more enjoyable. Right? He's there uh, just trying to catch a nap, watch his movie, do his thing. Going to make my flight more enjoyable. How? Look how bulky the thing is and uh, the weight of it. I'm going to end up sweating here. This isn't going to make my flight more enjoyable. Puts it on for five minutes and then takes it off because he has absolutely what? No use for it. She proceeds down to the back of the airplane where there's a second man sitting. She hands him a parachute and says, look, put this on. This plane's going down in 30 minutes what does he do? He puts it on. And if he's uncomfortable, if he's sweating, if he's miserable, he doesn't care. Why? Because the parachute meets his need. Do you see where I'm going with this? Far too often, the gospel just kind of, by people. It passes right overhead. Why? Because they are unconvinced of their need for it. Oh, please hear that text again from 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't stop lying to yourself. You are not in. I am not in. That is our condition before a holy God. We need righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the parachute. That's the Lord Jesus Christ offered to you right now. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness of God. He is the one who has paid the penalty for our sins. He is the one who has obeyed God perfectly. And the commandment, the invitation, the begging is what? That we receive Christ. That we believe in Christ. And by becoming one with him, we become the righteousness of God. Not because of our righteousness, but because we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we are now in the kingdom. Not because of our, our righteousness, we are unrighteous sinners by nature, sinners by life, sinners in thought, word, and deed. Our sin touches and corrupts everything. But I am now in this kingdom, righteous in the sight of God, because I am one with His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, hear these words, the old hymn writer. The sin, my sin, is on the Savior laid, Tis in his blood sin's debt is paid. Stern justice can demand no more. And mercy can dispense her store. The sinner who believes is free can say, The Savior died for me. Can point to the atoning blood and say, This made my peace with God. You see, it is marked by righteousness. It is marked by peace with the living God. The removal of all hostility. In Christ, God is no longer a terrifying judge. He is a loving Father. In Christ, He is no longer a terrifying judge. He is a loving Father. In Christ, He is no longer a condemning God. But a pardoning God. In Christ, he is no longer a threatening God, but a welcoming God. God's wrath is removed in Christ because Christ has swallowed it all and left nothing for me. Our peace with God as Christians, as members of the kingdom of God, is such. God loves us as if we had never been the object of his wrath. That's beautiful. He now loves us as if we had never been the object of his wrath. Oh, hear this hymn writer from centuries ago. Bowed down beneath a load of sin. By Satan sorely pressed. By war without and fears within. I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place. That sheltered by thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. Oh, to be in Christ. It is everything, everything to the believer. To know that in Christ we become the righteousness of God that as the righteousness of God we are now at peace with God and enjoying and basking in peace with God we know says Paul in 14:17 we enjoy the joy of the holy spirit oh righteousness peace and joy am i in god's kingdom that's the starting point i pray we all are if you aren't again let me reiterate it let me reaffirm it let me reoffer him God himself offers his son, the Lord Jesus, and he calls on you as a sinner to receive his son, to believe in the Lord Jesus, the one who made atonement for sinners at Calvary's cross, the one who bore the wrath and judgment in full at Calvary's cross, the one who lived the life you could never live, and he now offers him to you, and he calls you and invites you to rest in him, Believe in Him, receive Him, so that you might become the righteousness of God, that you might know this peace with God, and that you might know and taste of the joy of the Holy Spirit. It brings us to our second question, which brings us to the main thrust of the text. As a member of the kingdom of God, am I, ma- am I pursuing what makes for peace and edification In the church. Notice the connection. It's Paul. He makes it. Again, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us, if we really get it, if we're in the kingdom and we're basking in this righteousness, this peace, this joy, if we've really taken to heart the gospel, here's the consequence, here's how it will flow out. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You see, when I don't live, when I don't live in the light of the gospel, as Paul has articulated it there in verse 17, when I don't live in the light of the gospel, I won't pursue what makes for peace and edification in the church. I won't. For people who don't really grasp the gospel, Opinions become insurmountable obstacles because everything is riding on them. Did you hear me? I'll repeat it. For people who don't really get the gospel, opinions become insurmountable obstacles because everything is riding on them. Meaning what? They have equated their opinions with God's acceptance of them unto salvation. And that is now how they view everyone else. That is the starting point from which they view others. The instinct, oh, the instinct to look down on another Christian over his opinions is one of the most obvious telltale signs of a heart from which legalism has not yet been fully or finally banished. Because it implies that I merit the grace of God more than my brother does. I merit, I merit the grace of God more than my brother dies. You see, with the gospel dies the spirit of legalism. And when the spirit of legalism dies, the onus, the weight placed on these opinions, given all out of proportion to their importance, also dies. And the commandment of Paul in this text emerges to the surface. Do not destroy, but edify. When I live, when I live in the light of the gospel, I pursue what makes for peace and edification in the church. Oh, may the Lord give us eyes to see. May he cause us to understand this. The relationship between how I live how I view others, how I interact with others, how I receive others, welcome others, reject others, all stemming from this starting point, how I perceive myself before God. When my starting point is this, I am unrighteous and I am on the outside looking in And all that I have, I owe to the grace of God. That becomes transformative in how I view others. How I receive others. How I welcome others. How I heed these commands. To not judge, but welcome. To not destroy, but edify. Our great God in heaven. As we close our Bibles, we pray that we would not close our minds or our hearts but that by your spirit you might take all that has been expressed and declared today and apply it deep within our souls. We pray especially for unbelievers in our midst, those who do not know the Lord Jesus, those who are still lost in their sin, those who still approach you on a legal basis from a legal framework and mindset. Oh, may you humble them for their sin and show them that the righteousness of Christ is the only thing that is acceptable and pleasing in your sight, and might you bring them to faith in your son. We pray for us as Grace Community Church, a body of believers, and we pray that truly we would pursue those things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding, that you would implant in each of us a desire to see one another growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that you might implant in us a longing to see others built up in the faith, May this be our desire. May we love one another with that love with with which you have loved us. In giving your Son who gave himself up for us. In his matchless name we pray. Amen.